Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, and welcome to another episode of New Books in Islamic Studies. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Michael Laffin, professor at Princeton University, about his uh, great new book, The Makings of Indonesian Islam, Orientalism, and the Narration of a Sufi Past. Uh, Michael, thanks for joining us. How are you? I'm very well. Thanks for having me. Um, Before we get kind of into the the details of this uh, very richly documented book, and uh, I, I will say now that we will not be able to cover maybe even half of what you what you do in this book. Um, but maybe you could tell us a little bit about how you got interested in Islamic studies, uh, maybe some influential uh, advisors or people uh, that, that really inspired you in, in this field. Actually, I suppose it's all an accident. Um, I was originally thinking I would do engineering at uh, university, and, and when that didn't really pan out after a year of not-so-successful classes, I fell back on something that I'd done in high school, which was Indonesian. And uh, growing up in Australia, uh, you know, Indonesia and Indonesian seemed like a logical subject to study, but I never really thought that it would lead to anything much in the future. It was always something I enjoyed. Uh, But as time went on, I I sort of switched courses from engineering back to, uh, I suppose, what you would call a liberal arts degree here. Uh, in area studies, and um, lacking direction, I picked up Indonesian again and decided to just try something new, and um, it was Arabic, um, although it could have been Thai or Korean at the time, and uh, so I picked up Arabic or started to pick it up and I just found I really enjoyed studying the language so much that I wanted to think of any way I could that could you know keep me working with Arabic and also working with Indonesian, and uh, I suppose... As time went on, too, I, I realized that the things that really connect these two parts of the world, and there are deep connections, you have a lot of Arabic in Indonesian, um, perhaps upwards of 20, 30% of the vocabulary is drawn from Arabic. Uh, but of course, it's not an Arabic, it's not a Semitic language. Um, as time went on, I, I realized that, uh, you know, what what connected these two places together was, of course, Islam and Islamic history. And, and I suppose I came into Islamic studies um, just... Uh, just wanting to understand a little bit more about these connections and, and realizing that you, know, you couldn't get very far in talking about Indonesia today without having some understanding of, if, of the religion that the majority of the population professes. Was there any kind of like turning point where you said, wow, I really, uh, I'm going to become a professional in Islamic studies? Uh, <laughs> or was it just a series of accidents? Well, I don't know. Um, I was always sort of drifting along and not quite sure what I was a specialist in. Um, indeed, my first project was much more linguistically oriented rather than, you know, religiously oriented. Um, when I was doing my honours year in, at the ANU in, in Australia, the Australian National University, uh, I worked on um, the Malay translation of an Arabic book uh, written uh, in the early part of the 20th century about the rise of Japan. So and it was about a story of how... Uh, a secular narrative about the, you know, the sort of the rise of an Eastern nation, um, you know, which, which defeated Russia 
uh, in the war of uh, over influence in Korea. Uh, you know how that was translated and, and, in a sense, Islamized. But you know, I still didn't think of myself as someone who did Islamic studies per se. Uh, indeed, when I started my doctoral dissertation, it was going to be a study of a, a Dutch Orientalist who looms large in my writings. I must admit. Um, but as time went on, when I, when I looked at the papers of this Orientalist, uh, Snooker Gronje, um, in the Netherlands, uh, in, you know, in preparation for the PhD, I realized that there was a far more important story uh, in the papers, and that was the story of Indonesians themselves, uh, the Indonesians he was supposed to, to observe, to uh, manage in a way, because he, he later took on the role of being the advisor to the, the colonial state, the, the Dutch colonial state. Um, in the Netherlands Indies, uh, and you know, it, it's it's in part, you know, when did I decide I was someone who did Islamic studies? I, I'm not sure that I would say so narrowly that I am just someone who studies is, Islam, um, but I, I, I certainly work on the history of Muslims and uh, and the re- re- relationship between Muslims and people of other religions. Um, could you tell us a little bit about how? Uh this project came about. And um, I, I'm wondering also if you could, since this is your second book, if mm. there's any kind of reflection on how about going uh, writing your first book versus the, the second book? Well, the second book was much harder, and uh, in part because I didn't really have that deadline. But the first book was the result of a, a doctoral dissertation. And, you know, with a doctorate or a PhD, you you think, okay, I've only got so many years, this is a project, it's an exercise, I've, I've got a, you know, only a certain amount of time to gather the material, put it together, um, and then, you know, synthesize something and show people what I can do. Um, so that's, that worked okay. And, and then when I finished the, the PhD, which was looking at the, the importance of, of Egypt uh, or thinking about reformist Islam <laughs> at the end of the 19th century, that its importance in in shaping the notions of the, the boundaries of Indonesia um, in the colonial period, you know, the idea that what, what was it that united people from various parts of the archipelago and how was that sense of confraternity um, accentuated or awakened through travel to the Middle East through either for the Hajj in, in uh, Arabia or indeed for extended periods of study in, in cities like Cairo. Um, so that was the, the first project and, you know, I... It was a relatively doable project in a way, whereas the the second project was something that I never quite set in in stone, you know, thinking about what what is really going on here. It was more about um, reaction to a number of things, reaction to stereotypes about the supposed, you know, the nature of Islam in Southeast Asia, um, which is often expressed in terms, you know, antithetical somehow to Islam in other places. You know, the idea that, of course, there are cultural zones, you could say, there are styles of Islam, but the idea that somehow everything was explained through the moment of conversion, conversion never never really satisfied me. And and I was interested in, in tracing the lineaments of of how the idea of how this idea came to be, and, and indeed how this idea is is so popular in Indonesia itself today, and, and that idea basically is that uh, somehow you know through some sort of mystical uh, accommodation um, that you know Indonesians were first drawn to convert to Islam 
in, say, the, the 13th century, it seems, 12th, 13th century, uh, and how, you know, slowly over time, you know, the religion took root and, and eventually begot, became sort of uh, a crucial means of resistance to the, the inc- uh, increasing colonial presence in the region, uh, particularly not, not just the Portuguese in the 16th century, but then the, more particularly the Dutch, um, who through the Dutch East India Company began to exercise ever greater influence over the archipelago. So it was, it was a project that was very large. And, and again, I felt I was just working through the materials, trying to make sense of them myself and, and try to see, you know, how it was that the representatives of the Dutch East India Company, you know, came to understand Islam or when they came to think that Islam was worth understanding. And then looking you know, in the, the successor to the Dutch East India Company, um, which really was wound up at the end of the 18th century, um, in the 19th century with the increasing assertion of rule by the metropolitan Dutch uh, kingdom, um, you know, and how when the business of colonialism, as we understand it, perhaps really took, took shape in the 19th century, how it was that Islam was seen from the colonial side. Now, that's only half the story, of course, uh, and the other part of the story is to understand how, you know, Indonesians themselves were um, perhaps seeing Islam or, or, and what were the trends, you know, the, the people tend to speak too much, I think, or too easily about a constant process of reform, 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 and, you know, there's a teleology of ever greater connection with the Middle East and ever greater purification and, in a sense, changing of the character of Islam in Southeast Asia. And I was more interested in seeing or looking at the dynamic process, uh, not seeing it just in terms of missionaries coming from the Middle East, um, Arab or Indian or otherwise, and and seeing, you know, how Indonesians themselves from various parts of what we now call Indonesians were actively engaging uh, across the Indian Ocean and returning and what sort of notions they were bringing back with them and, and how both the religious life of the archipelago changed, but also how the political life of the archipelago was shaped by the religion. I've probably rabbited on a little bit too much. <laughs> no, 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 I know good. there are lots of things uh, embedded in here. Yeah. Um, so two of the two of the real strengths of this book, which I think make it uh, a, a great model for other authors, is uh, you you really could have made several books out of this one book because you look at these kind of multi pronged. Uh, relational activities. So you have Dutch authorities, you have missionaries, you have Muslims that are from Indonesia, you have Muslims abroad, and you look at all these various interactions and how, the, how they view each other. Um, and you, you do this in kind of this very, uh, it's almost a genealogy of sorts, the way you approach this. And um, I, I think it really adds to the value of this work. Um, can can you take us kind of to uh, the the early history of Islam uh, in the area? You you talk about some of the sources that are available for constructing an early history in the area. Um, what what can we do with those sources? How how should we understand those? What are they telling us? Right. Uh, well, you know, in many ways, I look back and I people have said yes, you could have done many books with this and I read that as a, a gentle criticism and it's a fair one too. Um, you know, it's when you're reading all this or you think you're trying to read all this stuff, um, you tend to put things down on the page in perhaps too shorthand away, way. And, uh, you know, you can leave people a little bit 
confused with a boggle of names, and I, I fully admit that I'm a little bit anxious about that. Um, but I also felt it was really important to put put the people in as much as possible and, and recognise that it's a complicated picture. But yes, the way to try and make sense of it was indeed to try and construct, you know, it's sort of a, a genealogical approach, both from the Indonesian sources and also from the Dutch sources. Now, as far as the sources go... Um, you know, in the way you have to read the Dutch sources against the grain, so to speak, you know, to look for what might be going on, what might be partially observed or not observed. And not all the sources are Dutch either, I should say. Um, quite a few um, English sources I was looking at. Um, and, and the missionaries really come in in a big way in the 19th century. Um, a friend of mine has chided me and said I was a bit bit tough on the mill on the, the missionaries you know a little bit too cynical and um he, you know he has his he has his point there um but i think it's really important to plug the missionaries into the story otherwise and, and see how crucial they were in the 19th century for sure they they didn't like what they saw necessarily and they were looking for ways to you know to get in to convert muslims to christianity but by the same token it was their on-the-ground observations that needed to be contrasted with these sort of fixed ideas that some more scholarly observers had, which were grounded more in texts. And it was always about measuring text, what the text said should be going on against what it seemed that people were doing and, and you know, in many senses judging them as not living up to the standards of their faith. And and that's where people like Snook come in and, and the missionaries who preceded him. And they recognised that People were, you know, Muslim as much in Indonesia as they were, say, in Egypt. Um, if you were going to, say, you know, imagine that there's a pure standard somewhere by which people uh, either fail or succeed as Muslims, then you're not really looking at the religion properly. But in terms of going on the other side, I must confess at the outset that, I mean, Indonesia and indeed Southeast Asia, it's a very, very diverse place. You're dealing with lots of languages here. And I... Because of my own background, I don't I don't have Javanese, for example, or Buganese, um, or some of the other languages of the archipelago. And I really work with um, what are Malay sources, or Malay is now Indonesian. Um, but these are sources written in a, a language using Arabic script, uh, but in a language that was accessible to a great many people in the archipelago. Um, and Malay wasn't just a language of of you know communication it wasn't just a, a a bizarre language as some might imagine uh it really was a language of learning of scholarship and um many people in the archipelago would have you know understood uh you know islam through through malay sources or at least uh, translations of malay sources which were themselves either translated from arabic or you know digested from various arabic works now, of course, it's not possible for me to read absolutely everything. Uh, some of the Malay histories, so to speak, or chronologies are much more devoted to uh, valorizing or validating particular rulers in the region at various times, particular sultans. Uh, and also when it comes down to looking for expressions of religion, many of the, the primers, the basic books that people would have used in religious schools, uh, were much more... Um, there's a certain modularity to them. They're not the most exciting reading in some senses because they're explaining the basic principles of religion. Um, so, you know, what you can get out of those is not necessarily that great either uh, if you're trying to 
reconstruct a lineage. Uh, it's more important to see when particular books come in and out of favour. And then when it comes to the question of of looking at, at mysticism or Sufism, and, and here I was looking at the idea that somehow mysticism had to be connected to particular, uh, for want of a better term, uh, orders or lineages of scholars and mystics, then here was an area where we could start to look at the sources and say, well, you know, how far back do these lineages go? And in, and in here the textual sources are, um, in a way, they're not so difficult to read in, in that if you're looking for the genealogical components, you're looking, often there's an explicit listing uh, given by a teacher of who their teacher was and who their teacher's teacher was all the way back. Um, and these these lineages, these silsila uh, or chains literally of, of authority are, are really worth looking at and, and thinking about, well, you know, how does this help us understand when a particular style of Sufi teaching comes into a particular place? Um, always recognising that, you know, silsilas can be written and reconstructed at later times, but trying to see what matches up, you know, and whether we can twin, um, for example, um, any, you know, we, we can, we see changing practices in, in Java and across the archipelago in the 19th century. Is this connected in some way with the rise of a particular Sufi order known as the Naqshbandiya, which became popular um, in Syria and uh, um, in the, back again in, in, um, in the holy places in Mecca and Medina, uh, in the 19th century, after the, in the wake of the first um, Saudi um, rulership over over those sites, um, so you know, can we say that these changes are attributable to particular Sufi lineages or not? And so that's where those sources come in. And again, it bounces back and looking at the colonial lens, which really opens up for Southeast Asia and Indonesia in particular at the end of the 19th century, when when you can say that what is now Indonesia really starts to come much more clearly into view um, that the borders are being fixed and the last of these once independent Muslim sultanates are being brought more directly under Dutch authority. Um, now, Michael, I don't think anyone would charge you with not uh, looking at enough sources. This is, this is a very, uh, very rich uh, narrative you, you present us with, with uh, the amount of sources you go through. Um, but, if I, if I read you correctly, um, when we actually got, get to see uh, very clearly what sources are being used by Muslims, um, it seems to be happening around the uh, mid to late um, 18th century. And you look at ed- educational institutions. Could you, could you tell us a little bit about um, what kind of sources these uh, Muslims are using within education? Um, and I, I guess I should mention that you, you do this kind of one of the main arguments you're trying to make is that uh, against this kind of Sufi narrative that uh, all all Muslims in the area they're just interested in Sufism or they're related to Sufism and what what can these texts that are used in educational institutions tell us against that narrative maybe right well you know in, in first I felt um, in terms of sources I felt I really in retrospect haven't looked enough at contemporary Indonesian scholarship. And um, I, I make that, you know, as a note of apology from the outset. I think there's a lot of fantastic work that's being done by uh, Indonesian scholars, uh, such as Oman Fatorahman, uh, for example, um, who have been doing similar things going into these silsilas and, in fact, going in, in more depth than, than I have or can. 
Um, but in terms of looking at the sources for the 18th century, in a way I was looking at an archive of material that was, you, really, you could say, captured uh, often. You know, these are materials that were taken uh, at the end of the at the end of the 18th century and in the 19th century. And so they offer us a particular perspective on the sorts of education that may have been available to people in courts, for example, uh, royal courts, rather than necessarily out in the smaller schools, for want of a better term, out in the countryside. Now, here's a, here's a key problem, though. Um, in Indonesia today, there's an assumption that... Um, the form of the school, as is now known in, in Indonesia, the pasantran, the, the place of the students or santris, uh, has been there from the beginning. You know that uh, particular teachers, Sufi or otherwise, um, in you know inculcating Islam in the local population, set established schools. Um, now, whilst that's possible, we are struck with the problem in that we have no sources that actually identify what we would call a pasantran before the 18th century, I believe. Um, and even then, it's these are tangential observations. Um, it seems rather that education took place or was, you know, identified with the mosque rather than a separate, you know, sort of a boarding school that we would now see uh, in many parts of the archipelago. But in terms of, you know, these collections, we do start to see extensive collections of materials from pasantran from the 19th century, and I should say Pasantran is a Javanese term. It's uh, different parts of the archipelago have different names for what is something like a, a religious boarding school. Um, and these schools rose and fell very much with the previously with the the fame of the local teacher. You know that people would move from place to place looking for particular expertise and knowledge that often translated in terms of knowledge of a particular text, be it a text on, you know elementary jurisprudence or another text um, that might be connected to a particular uh, mystical teaching or a philosophical text. Um, so people tended to move around a lot. These days, of course, the institutions have started to take on lives of their own and, and outlive the original founders or the, the families that were connected with them. Um, but in terms of what people were learning, it, it, I think the crucial distant difference, or at least for the, the stuff I was interested in in my book, was... Um, the impact that print had in the 19th century um, on the sort of standardization of the scholarly diet of someone in a religious school. Um, and also we have to realize that religious schools are not necessarily geared to producing uh, religious teachers per se. Um, they may have made people, of course, very excited about the idea of, of continuing on in this tradition, but the vast bulk of pupils at a religious school were receiving education in in writing, um, basic literacy, um, and, and an ethical education, um, which, which could then be taken onto any, any part of um, life, you know, whether you were engaged in trade or working as a farmer or even... Um, towards the end of the 19th century, being absorbed by the colonial state as as an official, as some um, some individuals were. Uh, now, I haven't really spoken about the key. The, I suppose, being a historian, I'm always looking for differences. You know, what are the texts that come in favour and what what come out? Um, and I don't know. I think there's a striking amount of of continuity in many of the texts, at least at the basic level. Um, of the juridical level. Um, and when I say juridical, it's perhaps an overly formulaic term to use here, but, but just so that people knew how, um, 
you know, when when you're in a state of ritual purity or not, uh, you know, what to eat, what not to eat. Um, but, but questions, more legal questions um, that were still taught, you know, how inheritance was to be determined, uh, how marriage was to be conducted, etc. These sorts of issues then became, that became increasingly in the under the realm or the purview of the colonial state. Um, you know, criminal law no longer became something that was handled by Islamic law, um, rather that many issues were being handled uh, from at the end of the 19th century by, you could say, specially convened courts that were overseen by Dutch residents and, and took the advice of, of local uh, scholars. And increasingly, you know, the information that was at hand as to what, you know, what Islamic law was and how standardised it was, was was increasingly printed. And there were manuals available more and more or, or, or texts that were available and which could be purchased from afar afield as Egypt, for example, or the Ottoman Empire. Or even from the, the 1880s, uh, there was a press active in Mecca that was producing these, these guidebooks uh, in Malay and in Arabic, uh, which were then spread throughout the archipelago. Um, another thing that I think is really um, integral to your your study here and and your previous book as well um, are these trans regional connections. Um, and uh, if I I don't, I don't think you have a specific point where you talk about this explicitly in the book, but it's scattered throughout. Can you can you talk a little bit about the importance of uh, these these connections with the Middle East, uh, both for Muslims and then maybe. Um, how foreigners were concerned about these connections. Mm. Right. Well, I mean, in many ways, I never particularly worried too much about whether what I did was transnational history or not. And I suppose rather like the sources that I read, people aren't so concerned about, of course, they recognize that they're traveling, they're moving to other places, but they're not necessarily foreign places all the time. And these connections are of long standing and, uh, and makes sense to people, you know. The idea, of course, for every believer, if they're if they're able to and capable of, of doing it, um, is to to perform the Hajj, the pilgrimage to Mecca. Uh, but of course, that comes along with the uh, the desire to visit many of the places uh, where the Prophet had been active and his companions. Uh, and then, of course, the the further impetus to travel to other centres to study. Now, not everyone who left would go and study, but the point is that over time. The, the sheer numbers of people who were able to make these journeys across the Indian Ocean increased, um, whereas once, you know, in order to travel all that way uh, to Mecca from Indonesia um, required money, required um, support, often the sort of support that could be lent by a royal authority, um, was supplanted more and more in the 19th century that there were more and more people who were able to save up and had the economic capacity to to make the pilgrimage uh, or to support uh, a family member who would wish to study abroad. Uh, And more and more, it's actually the the tightening up of these colonial networks in the 19th century and of the opening of the Suez Canal, the the rise in passing steam shipping, um, shipping that was handled both by European companies and also by Arab companies operating out of uh, Singapore. Uh, and other and other sites in the archipelago saw more and more people able to make make these these journeys, and these journeys became more and more organised. Um, and I think you see that ever greater numbers are moving, and people in motion, both Indonesians moving across 
uh, to the Middle East for purposes of, of uh, pilgrimage and study, um, and not necessarily return either. Um, some people aspired to to even uh, pass away in the Holy Land. Uh, there were, uh, by the same token, you also had num- greater numbers of people moving uh, from what is now Yemen, uh, from Hadramaut into Southeast Asia, and having an impact on on Islam. Uh, people looking for you know livelihoods and, and awakening connections in the opposite direction. So you see that you know it's it's uh, indeed one of the peak years. I think I might be wrong here, eighteen eighty eight or thereabouts. The the sheer numbers of pilgrims from from what is now Indonesia actually vastly outnumbered those from any other place, uh, including India at the time, um, and they became a, a much more a visible presence uh, in the Holy Land uh, by the end of the 19th century and a, and a visible market, it should be said, too. Um, but these connections continue today. Um, you know, you have the pilgrimage now is something that's organised by the Indonesian state. There is, of course, a cap on how many people can go just to cope. Uh, the, the, the modern Saudi authorities have to put a limit on how many people can travel. But it, it really is this... This, this important um, process uh, for, for the Indonesian uh, nation today, too. Now, um, in, the, in the second section of the book, you, f- you basically uh, focus on kind of the, the Dutch colonial perspective on yeah. what, what exactly is going on in the area. Um, and one of the things uh, that seemed striking was uh, the, the Dutch fixation on scholarship about... Islam. Um, could you talk a, bit, a little bit about why that was so important to them and how, how they went about doing that? Because uh, you, you mentioned uh, Clifford Geertz in the beginning, but no one is really interested in what Muslims are doing. Uh, well, they're more interested in texts, I guess I should say. Um, yeah, I suppose that was a point I was trying to make, although, you know, sometimes I worry that I might have missed <laughs> I mean, for example, in the 19th century, uh, it sh- it's not just a straightforward story of the Dutch coming in and overwhelming parts of the archipelago and finally joining it all together. It's things, the Dutch were sometimes just bit players in parts of the archipelago. Um, they were even shunted aside briefly by the, the British um, during the Napoleonic period. Uh, Indeed, uh, there was even a British governor of Java, Java um, for a few years from 1811 to 1816 um, who he and his colleagues were quite interested in what was going on and, and they um, uh, Raffles was one, of course, we might have heard of. Um, but there were others, Mackenzie, uh, who wrote uh, quite detailed uh, information about the practice of Islam, even if they were, it was, of course, through the lens of disapproval, you know, seeing Indonesians or seeing Javanese in particular as imperfect believers at best. Um, superficial Muslims is often the sort of characterization that one meets in some of these earlier sources. Um, that reflects, I think, more superficial encounters or, or a desire to see a certain sort of um, Islam um, or not even to see Islam at all. Um, Perhaps in part it's because Islam was not necessarily seen as a threat, a coordinated threat. Um, indeed, in parts of Java, the Dutch in the 18th century were encouraging of Islam against uh, the impact of Balinese rule in, in East Java or Balinese. Um, the Balinese were seen as someone, you know, perhaps they could deal with less. Um, now, just going back to the question of scholarship, um, 
Some have made the argument, um, Carl Steinbrink, for example, argues that early Dutch sources on Islam are not particularly fulsome because it reflects a sense that they feel they already know what Islam is. You know, they've had long communication with um, Muslim states, with Muslims. Uh, indeed, the Dutch and sometimes the English had quite good relations with um, Muslim states, uh, whether that in terms of the Ottoman Empire or the North Africa, um, against the Iberians, for example. Um, I find it, it quite interesting, indeed, that um, when the Dutch first get to the Moluccas, the Spice Islands, at the end of the 16th century, one of the people who encourages them and shows them around is a Turkish uh, spice procurer who happened to be present there at the time. Um, so the relationship with Islam was not always antithetical. Um, but really what one does see in the 19th century is this sense of the tightening up of control, of, of getting in the business of ruling over Muslims, not just you know, in name of the local sultanates, but, but really ruling and counting and, and trying to decide, well, you know, how many Muslims are there in Java? How many schools are there? Um, these are things that are done surprisingly late. Meanwhile, in the Netherlands, you could say that contact with thinking about Islam was much more seen through the lens of the, the nearer Muslims and the collections uh, that are held at Leiden University, for example, has a, a fabulous collection of uh, Islamic materials. But many, many of it is, uh, many materials are really, and the older stuff is much more from uh, the, the Middle East, um, from uh, the Ottoman Empire. Uh, and that's not born of a colonial relationship, it's just born of a long-standing trading uh, relationship. Meanwhile, coming to grips with, with Arabic too could be seen the preserve of some scholars, it was more Arabic that was studied in order to better understand Hebrew to, to try and reconstruct, um, well, it's through biblical scholarship and that, that sort of lens that, you know, Islam was sort of an ancillary um, inconvenience, one might say. But, but in, the 18th, sorry, in the 19th century, it became much more clearly the case that Islam was a force that allowed people of various parts of the archipelago to see commonality and to, to also uh, unite um, against the intrusion of Dutch power. Um, and that was seen very visibly in the, in the, the Padri, um, the wars in, in Sumatra, but also in the, the rising of Prince Diponogoro on Java in the 1830s. But back to, I'm sorry, 1825 to 1830, but back in Sumatra, it, people like Raffles and others started to speculate, you know, where does Islam come from? And often they would want to see someone else behind things. They often pointed to the increasing numbers of Arabs that they saw or met in the archipelago, increasing number of hajis, pilgrims. And it was felt that, you know, the, these influences were stemming from Mecca, rather, and that they were new somehow, rather than seeing them as an old part of the, the fabric of connections between between places. And indeed, I think it was Raffles was the first to speculate that the Padres in in uh, West Sumatra uh, was some form of, of Wahhabi, you know, that somehow there had to be some sort of necessary similarity between what they were doing in, in West Sumatra with what had been done uh, very recently uh, in in Mecca and Medina. Um, so, I mean, I wanted to sort of pick away at some of these things too. Yeah. Um, now, you uh, in the third section, it's almost like a case study in this the, mm. this body of kind of 
uh, colonial native uh, encounters. So, and you focus on this figure, uh, Snook. I'm not even going to try to pronounce the rest of the name. <laughs> it's uh, enough to just say Snook, and, and yeah. <laughs> but per- perhaps you could uh, introduce us to Snook. Tell us who he was, uh, how he fits into kind of what what you've been talking about as far as these kind of. Uh, scholarship in uh in Leiden and uh, both right. in Indonesia well snook uh he's an, he's he's nothing if not an interesting character um one would say almost domineering um incredibly smart uh person he originally enrolled at Leiden University in the 1880s to to uh study theology um and like many you know who became orientalist scholars in the end uh, they came often with a uh, you could say a theological background or a church background, uh, but he changed. I mean, he studied Arabic initially to help his Hebrew, and then it, he sort of it took over. He ended up writing a dissertation on the history of the Hajj, uh, and then, in part because he didn't have a, a job directly to go to, he was working for the Colonial Institute. But um, he was given he was subsidised to go on a trip uh, to Jeddah. Uh, to where the Dutch consulate uh, was uh, from the 1870s. And the Dutch, by this time, were, were monitoring the, the pilgrims um, all the way from, you know, from their various uh, regencies um, in the Netherlands Indies and also on the journey there, you know, the people, the pilgrims were required to present themselves at Dutch consulates on the way, uh, whether it's, say, Singapore or uh, Colombo, uh, and then ultimately through the processing facilities that the Ottomans were forced to, to set up um, in Cameroon Island uh, in the Gulf, I'm sorry, in, uh, in the Red Sea. And, and then, you know, at the last point was the, the Jeddah Consulate itself. And that was where, that was as far as the colonial state could see. You know, the, what, and the colonial state was wondering at this time uh, in 1884, uh, you know, what, what were the influences that people were coming under? Who, who were these Sufis, by the way? And, and indeed, you could say in the 1880s, the Dutch looked at the Sufi orders as some sort of nebulous network, you know, sort of an al-Qaeda of the time, you know, that somehow had its headquarters in Mecca or, or may perhaps have been influenced by the Ottoman Sultan. They really weren't clear on all this. And they wanted someone to interview the pilgrims before they headed off um, on the last, the last part of their journey, um, and you know, got on, often boarded a camel uh, to be taken to the holy places. Well, Snook decided to go uh, one bit further and, and uh, converted to Islam, um, if if only in name. Um, and it should be said too that he he really, I think, was a religious. He, he was. Um, I won't say cynical necessarily, but um, he was more an observer of religion than a practitioner. Um, even if he he carried off the the pretense, or or at least carried off the outward manifestation of Islam so well that people really did think he was a Muslim, at least Muslims did. Um, and he he joined with some um, Indonesians in Mecca and set about sort of um, observing what went on in the holy city and. Although he, he tended to um, play to the colonial fears of Sufi, the Sufi orders and indeed used his time in Mecca and the work he wrote to, to point to the need for better knowledge of what actually happened um, in religious schools in the Indies and what were the Sufi networks um, in order to get himself another job. And that was 
basically to conduct a study tour of, of Java in uh, 1889-1890. Um, you could see that he, he really began to see less and less a story of, of fear to be manufactured from the Sufi networks, but more he wanted to just understand the history of Islam, Islamization, and to, to I think you could say he developed quite quite some sympathy with Muslims. Um, and it's not just not just about playing the part of being a Muslim, but, you know, he, in many ways, he got on much better with um, the Muslims he met and studied with than uh, some of the officials he worked with and, and many of whom he despised, it should be said. Um, he never really wanted to be an academic. I think he always wanted to be a field man, a scholar out in the field who was putting their knowledge to the service of the colonial state. And it, it should be pointed out that he might have had some sympathies for Muslims, but I think he always thought in terms of a, a paternalistic relationship between the Netherlands and the Netherlands Indies. You know, he increasingly wrote in the 20th century of you know the need a future a future relationship between the two places, but it was always going to be a relationship between the Netherlands and, and Indonesia, and that he have, he advocated that more and more Indonesians should be provided with you know as good an education as any Dutch person was able to get and so that they could take on the, the reins of government. But I don't think he necessarily thought of an independent Indonesia. Uh, he stayed in the Indies until um, he went back to the, the Netherlands um, in 1906 and uh, for what was going to be a temporary stay, but he remained there and uh, as a professor of, uh, of Arabic, among other things, uh, in Leiden University. And, and all organized and you know, brought many, many texts back from Indonesia uh, at that time. And uh, he really, uh, until the 1930s, you could say he, he had the controlling hand on the training of future officials to be sent to the Indies, but also for, the, for quite some time the discourse about how Islam was to be understood and to be managed. Let's, let's, be, let's be quite frank here that, you know, he was the key man in the colonial project. Uh, he did a very effective job of, I'd say, downplaying the work of anyone before him and very much it was his followers who continued on and and um, really dominated the study of, of Islam in, in Southeast Asia. Um, now, just for, for sake of time, we've obviously <laughs> skipped a lot of detail here. Um, yeah. But um, maybe you could talk about um, in the early 20th century some of the trends that are happening. We have uh, what we might call reform movements, mm-hmm. um, and we have many of Snook's successors uh, either looking at or active in South uh, East Asia. Um, could you could you tell us kind of what what's happening during this this period? Sure. Well, I should say that Snook was always at the head of a, an organization that was really charged with giving advice to the colonial state, but which did not make the decisions. And uh, increasingly towards the 1920s, you know, the decisions of the Office for uh, Native Affairs, as it was called, were often ignored because it was felt that they had played a role in letting some sort of genie out of the bottle that, uh, um, you know, that the encouragement that, that Snook and others had given towards Islamic reform movements, um, saying that, look, these, these organisations, they're about creating loyal subjects who better understand their religion, um, who better understand the texts of their faith, uh, and who are opposed to all sorts or all manner of, um, let's say, unorthodox behaviour that one might find out in the countryside. Um, that, you know... They had encouraged these organisations. They had, they had, through the influence on the Governor-General, 
encouraged the uh, recognition of, of Sadaqat Islam, which was the sort of first uh, founded really in, in 1911-1912. It, it emerged as a really important body for people to come together. And, and the very name Sadaqat Islam or Islamic Association was was felt to be something that gave voice to natives, uh, you know, indigenous Indonesians of, of many places uh, in calling for reforms, not just not necessarily of religion, but more as um, of, of, you know, providing a voice to indigenous population. Um, there were other organizations like Muhammadiyah founded around the same time, which was much more about Islamic reform, but also about, in a way, going about as the missionaries had of, of establishing schools, uh, welfare associations, newspapers. This was really crucial uh, in the 20th century and of creating, you know, giving a voice uh, to people. Now, of course, when they were giving themselves a voice and not necessarily calling for independence or resistance, then that was fine as far as elements within the colonial state were concerned. But by turns, particularly after the First World War, when various promises weren't honoured, um, of, of greater participation in politics and even uh, after the founding of a sort of a token parliament for elite Indonesians, you can see that by the 1920s there's a, there's a real shift towards advocating greater resistance to the colonial state and, and visualising an independent future, uh, which was not necessarily controlled by these Islamic organisations. Um, but certainly many Muslim reformers were principled nationalists too. Uh, and they came out of these reform schools very much embodied with a, uh, a vision of the future or the idea of even the very idea of a place called Indonesia, which began to be bandied about in the 1920s. Um, although the people who first... Even the term Indonesia had been a scholarly invention from the middle of the 19th century, but was increasingly accepted by Indonesians, uh, much as it was a term not tolerated by the Dutch colonial state. Um, although people like Snook used the word Indonesia in their writings. Uh, but in terms of the reformist movement, I should say that many of the key movers of Muhammadiyah and others were looking towards uh, thinkers in Cairo above all else, people like uh, Muhammad Abdu, who had been a prominent reformer, called for sort of um, a similar sort of a package of modernization that uh, through adapt adapting to and adopting uh, Western techniques of education uh, and certain Western subjects. You know, bookkeeping was incredibly popular in reformer schools uh, and modern languages, English, and even teaching the teaching of Arabic, say, uh, for purposes not just for understanding uh, religious texts but, but also for communication, for um, Islamic brotherhood, brotherhood across, uh, across the ocean, you could say. Um, they, they were looking at these, these sorts of thinking. People like Muhammad Abdu or Rashid Radar. Uh, in Cairo were extremely important and, and uh, for the thinkers in Southeast Asia. But it's important to note, too, that there were plenty of thinkers in Southeast Asia, too, who were writing for each other, um, people who were active in Singapore, too. Um, and I also feel important to state that in my book, I try to look at sources outside Indonesia at all times in the region as well. I mean, Singapore, which was under British control, was was always an important place. Even if Muslims became ultimately a small minority on the island, um, it was a place where the press was freer than in the Netherlands Indies, where ideas could be communicated. And, of course, the natural um, zone, the backyard for Singapore, is Indonesia, as it is today, too. 
Um, Singapore may complain about smoke haze, but a lot of that money that's invested and, and coming, you know, from the planting of these uh, uh, palm oil trees ends up in Singapore, so they don't want to complain too loudly. But or say, so too with ideas and movement that Singapore has been in a really important place. And indeed, the Malay, Malaysia um, has been important for Indonesia too. Um, well, Michael, we've taken a lot of your time. Um, but before Sorry. I let, yeah, thank you very much. Um, before I let you go, though, um, I'd love to hear about some of the things you're, you're working on or things you have coming out. Sure. Well, um, I think I'm, I'm coming out of from under my rock. Uh, I'm doing my best to escape Snookokronia. And so <laughs> I'm heading uh, into the 18th century more and more, looking at, and, and, you know, of course, finding that I might not have been as right as I hoped I was in some instances. Uh, no, I'm looking at a, a sort of a history of connections again, but to another place, and that's uh, to Cape Town. Um, the VOC, the Dutch East India Company, which was, you know, really the world's first transnational corporation, had bases from South Africa all the way to Japan uh, in the 17th century and into the 18th century. Um, well, a place when they felt that they were being resisted in particular courts or people weren't doing what they wanted, um, the logical sites of exile or deposition were either Sri Lanka or uh, South Africa. And a great many of uh, the Muslims of South Africa today um, have ancestors who came from the Indonesian archipelago, although many of them also came from, from India too, uh, and Mozambique and Madagascar. Um, but you can say that um, the Islamic culture in, in Cape Town was very much a, a Southeast Asian Islamic culture, and I'm interested in the story of some of these exiles. And whilst on the one hand you have a uh, there's quite a literature about what some of these exiles did in Cape Town. There's less awareness of who these people were before they were sent to Cape Town. So I've been following the trajectories of uh, a number of people who are who are now buried and, and honoured as saints in Cape Town and, and looking at their Indonesian past histories. Um, one was uh, a member of a group from the Eastern Moluccas who was sent out uh, in 1780 for trying to encourage the British against the Dutch. Uh, another is an Arab who who came from, from Yemen, uh, it seems, in the 1730s, came to Java and was um, incredibly influential at the court of, of, uh, in the court of central Java and who, in fact, was blamed for um, the loss of the, the garrison to combined Javanese and Chinese uh, forces in 1741 and was sent to Cape Town. So... I'm looking at these these stories of movement and deposition and and trying to sort of connect these stories, connect an African story to a Southeast Asian story. And there'll be other people who I hope I can use to connect to a Sri Lankan story or a or an Arabian story and, and try and do some sort of, for want of a better term, global history, but look at the, the people who have uh, Jawi connections, Southeast Asian connections. That sounds great. Well, uh, thanks again for, for talking with us, and uh, we look forward to, to reading your future work, too. Well, thanks so much. Well, I hope that the next one could be a bit more readable. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thanks, Michael. You're very welcome, Christian. <laughs>